Hi, everyone. Hi, good evening. I think we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, thank you so much for coming. It's actually a nicer night out tonight. Um, my name is Diana Thompson. I'm the curator of the collection here at the National Academy. And on behalf of Director Carmen Brannigan and the entire staff and board, I'd like to welcome you to tonight's review panel. This program is organized in partnership with, with David Cohen and ArtCritical.com and occurs once a month here at the National Academy from fall through spring. The review panel is generously supported by the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and the New York State Council on the Arts. Tonight's panelists will discuss several exhibitions currently on view in galleries around New York. And I also encourage you to see the exhibitions on view here at the National Academy. In the museum galleries until May 3rd is Self, Portraits of Artists in Their Absence, an exhibition that explores the changing conventions of self-portraiture over the course of 200 years. Featured in the exhibition are works from the Academy's 19th and 20th century collection alongside works on loan by major modern and contemporary artists. Also currently on view in our curatorial lab, which is a dedicated project space on the museum's fourth floor, is an installation entitled Revealing Architecture, which features works by the architectural firm FX Fowl and painter and academician Richard Haas. Right outside this room in the Academy's school gallery is an exhibition of works by Anthony Baskin, one of our studio intensive students, which will be on view through April 11th. But now for the review panel, please join me in welcoming tonight's guests, as well as moderator David Cohen, publisher and editor of artcritical.com. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. It's lovely to see a full house and to, to get going again with the review panel. Uh, who's here on the panel? Who's here visiting the panel for the first time? Ah, excellent, great. A healthy, a healthy smattering of, of new faces, very good. That's lovely to see you. Uh, let me explain for your benefit and also to refresh the memories of our uh, regular attenders of what we do here. We've, we, the panel, have hopefully been to see uh, five exhibitions. Uh, we do, we've made some videos which we'll screen um, of the first couple of shows we're talking about. Then there'll be a chance for the audience to let off some steam and share their views on those two shows. Uh, then the next two shows, and then some more steam. And by then, you'll, you'll be out of steam, so we'll just look at the last show, rather briefly, ourselves, a show of young painters, um, which is a little bit of a departure for us uh, here on the panel. We usually do four exhibitions or less, um, but uh, there's a feeling that this, this, it's, a, it's a good thing to check in occasionally with uh, the younger crowd. We'll talk about that more um, a little later on. Um, it, it, it arose partly, actually, as a result of um, a discussion of a younger painter at the last panel and, and the realization that uh, the level playing field is sometimes um, artificial and strange to deal with when sometimes dealing with very big established reputations at other times just turning to the next 15-minute slot or whatever it is to somebody wet behind the ears or fresh out of art school or whatever. So. Um, right, well, now it's my pleasurable duty to introduce you to this evening's guests. Uh, to my left, uh, your right, Christian Viveros Fonet uh, is uh, art critic of The Village Voice, and he is also uh, part of the, 
the two-man act, um, strictly critical, in which um, another regular attendee of the review panel, Blake Gopnik and Christian, um, go on uh, explorations of uh, mostly museum exhibitions and share their critical thoughts with one another. Indeed, joust with one another to, to get to some sort of consensus. Uh, to my other side, Jennifer Samet is uh, Dr. Jennifer Samet is an art historian, critic, curator. Uh, she teaches art history at the New School and Cooney, and she's known to many of us for her regular column on hyperallergic beer with a painter. A series of dialogues with many uh, leading artists uh, and 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 less known but artists who have a lot to say and are worth listening to. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful series because it seems uninhibited by reputation and just to deal with the artists that Jen finds interesting. And uh, finally, also returning as, as Christian is to the review panel, but haven't seen you for a while, uh, David Levy-Strauss. David, uh, David heads up the art criticism program at SVA, um, a graduate of whom a graduate of which, I beg your pardon, uh, Noah Dillon is uh, the associate editor of Art Critical, so uh, we can vouch the fact that it works, at least has worked, for one graduate of that program. Um, it's a program, actually, that um, uh, David inherited, directly or indirectly, I believe, from Michael Brenson, another sometime review panelist. Great to see him here this evening, too, uh, in our audience. Anyway. Um, David, um, David is, uh, as I say, uh, teaches criticism at SVA, and is well known is a, a contributing editor at the Brooklyn Rail, uh, and has a, a special interest in photography. In fact, uh, a book he uh, he published uh, just earlier this year with uh, or last year with Aperture, um, words not spent today on small images for tomorrow. Did I get it right? Not quite. I didn't think I did. Wrong, wrong preposition for tomorrow. Words not spent today by small images tomorrow. Oh, right. Okay. Words not spent today by small uh, images tomorrow. Right. Okay. Got that edited on my page and on the record. Talking about the record, by the way, um, our proceedings are recorded, and many of you um, know, of course, that they are then podcast at artcritical.com. Just today, we um, were proud to post a heroically salvaged recording of our last, um, our last panel on, in February the 13th, also Friday the 13th, and uh, I'm not superstitious, but the computer <laughs> packed up on Friday the 13th, February, um, and it required some considerable expertise from I, Isaac Durfell, our, our recording engineer. Was it the North Korean? It, it might have been, actually, because we were, after all, discussing Merlin James, among others, and <clears throat> it's, it is perceived as a threat. <laughs> Anyhow, you can, you can hear almost all of last month's and pretty much all of the last ten and a half years of review panels if you've got a very slow weekend ahead of you, then you, 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 can, you can dig in to podcasts of the review panel. But many people tell me that actually it's a great, uh, it's a great background noise if you're painting. <laughs> uh, 
I, I don't paint. I would, if I did, I'd probably prefer Charlie Parker. But anyway, with no further ado, let's have the pleasure of seeing uh, a video of Alex de Corte and Charles Ray. So Christian, Christian, um, Alex de Corte, Philadelphia-based, Latin American raised. Venezuela. Venezuela, to be precise. Thank you. Um, I know Latin America is a big place. I suddenly blanked on whether it was Venezuela or Colombia, so I didn't want to commit a blunder having mangled David Levy Strauss's book title of then getting the wrong Latin American country. But Venezuelan raised, um, Philadelphia-based uh, artist. And something of a New York refusenik too. I mean, he's you know he's he's deliberately sort of not coming here to work. Um, in the sixth borough instead. Exactly. In yes. the uh, in the Alt Bushwick. Yes. Um, something like that. Uh, yeah, but he's apparently very committed to, to being there, and he has a, a group of artists that he, that he works with, uh, Jason Munson and a number of other people. Uh, and there is something of a Philadelphia aesthetic for the found object, the made object, the factory-like situation. Obviously, yeah. they've got it's it's uh, a sort of upscale Detroit in a way, with a sort of wonderful array of beautiful old factories to work in, and um, uh, and it's also, of course, the city not only of Aikens but also of Duchamp. So. Totally, totally. And, and, and I think Duchamp comes to mind very much in looking at this work. I mean, you know, some of the things, there's a lot of detail that, we, that can't really be captured via video or photography. Um, I mean, obviously what you're looking at is a, uh, is, is, is a series of environments that make up one single sort of like recursive environment. It's uh, that um, uh, uh, Luxembourg Diane is the gallery. Um, and it's a rather small townhouse. I don't remember exactly where it is. Actually, it says right here. It's on 77th Street. Um, and you actually sort of, uh, you dip into it, you plunge into it, you go through the rabbit hole of it or whatever metaphor we want to use um, through uh, a peephole that's in the middle door that we saw in the first shot. And when you look through the peephole, you actually see um, uh, Robert Goberg drain uh, and sort of jumping ahead on the third floor uh, where you see another environment essentially sort of a, a, a uh, autopsy room like environment um, which is also sort of glass mirrored there is an autopsy table um, uh, or rather a, a slab uh, you know these things that you draw out at I'm actually sort of like spacing a drawer a drawer thank you um, and and uh, uh, it's full of uh, Listerine frankly uh, uh, for a number of uh, I guess reasons that he's uh, the artist is probably better explained uh, can better explain you get another factory thing and then sort of at the bottom again is your Robert Gober drain so he's got two actual pieces that sort of like bring the whole thing circle around. On top of that, he's got another couple of pieces that he's appropriated works. Again, going back to Duchamp, going back to the idea of the ready-made. One of them is a Mike Kelly sort of throw piece that we saw in, in one of the shots, um, uh, some sort of stuffed toy. Uh, and the other one is a Heim Steinbeck shelf, which seems to somehow or other uh, replicate in a, in a in a pantry with a number of other sort of Heim Steinbeck shelves, yeah. like shelves. And let's not forget also 
uh, Alan Jones via Bjorn Melgard in the oh, yeah, and I'm coffee the, table. Exactly, yes. and I'm forgetting the, 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 the Bjorn Melgard uh, coffee table, um, uh, very un-PC coffee table of a woman basically sitting there in all, four, in all fours and, and done a bonded style. Um, again, before I sort of pass it to, to, to somebody else, I think one of the interesting things about what De Corte has done with with this with this uh, work, and I think in what he's done in, in in a number of pieces in a pretty young career, is use other people's, in fact, now quite expensive work, um, as just straight up ready mades. There's no big sort of like. There are no flashing. There's there's no flashing lights. There's neon there, but there's no big neon light telling you this is a very important yes. work of art. That's right. There's no label to 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 announce it. Now, in a way, though, um, Gober in twice, as it were, um, and and Gober also as a surrogate for Duchamp. Not not that Duchamp has a um, a monopoly or a copyright on peepholes, but somehow it's hard not to look through a peephole and think that one is reenacting uh, the Etant Donné in a certain respect. So to see instead of um, a fountain and a vagina, to see a drain has a certain resonance, intended or otherwise. Um, but the thing is actually that also like Gober, uh, he's a, a fastidious refabricator, isn't he? So it's uh, what looks like uh, a beautiful Tony townhouse full of tchotchkes and junk and and stuff of negligible uh, kind of, well, something sort of further down the social spectrum from East 77th Street. But most of it is actually crafted ex nihilo. Uh, and then the insertion of actual works, which are themselves appropriation or reconstructed appropriation ready-mades, um, is also a strategy familiar from exhibitions of Robert Gover. Um, yes. So it's uh, there's a, there are these degrees, aren't there, of referentiality? Um, Jennifer, what did you make of the um, of of both those things, the the, the 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 referentiality and also the fact of crafting from from scratch? Yeah, I I really liked this show actually. Um, the thing that I think Christian was saying that you don't really get a sense of when you're just looking at the video is um, the the passageway through all of these different environments that you get as you move through it. So you enter in a room that's dark and has these um, candied apples and candles on top of a mantelpiece. And then you move to another room um, where there's a rocking chair that's motorized, so it's rocking on its own. Um, and a stool that I think was um, maybe a replica of the only furniture that was in Kurt Cobain's apartment when he died. Um, and it has a, a braided rug. So you really move through these completely different environments and through each of them, I think they're very uh, transportive. And, and it's also a very synesthetic environment. So each room has certain sounds as you get to another room, which is, um, kind of has this feeling of a department store display, uh, like a Christmas display, and it has um, certain aromatics and, um, and scents. So you get, there's sounds and then there's scents that you're moving through um, that are all completely different. Then there's that kind of, um, 
uh, sex chamber or S&M room with the appropriated um, table that you were talking about. And it also has a stripper's pole and um, I think a, there's a remake of a Poussin mural and also a neon cat, so it has all of these different objects. And I think that he does all of those things really, really well. So there's certain objects, as you're saying, that are crafted, that he does in such attention um, to detail, but then I loved the way he appropriated objects as well and takes them. And I think he was, um, he was referring to the mamas and the papas were, had lived in that townhouse, and he sort of thought about that and thought about who his aesthetic forebears were. And I think he does it really well. I don't, I don't think the exhibition, even though there are so many different elements and sound, there, it, it's not um, a spectacle. It's, it's really just... More intimacy, is it? it? I felt it was really intimate. Actually, I wish that there weren't other people in there when I was there. So there were a couple of other people, and I was kind of trying to get away so that I could see it you know, for myself. There was one person, like, talking to me when I was in the morgue room. <laughs> so, yeah, the final room is this. Great chat-up situation, actually. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. In yeah. the morgue. Yes. But so, um, uh, David, um, actually, the, the what Jen refers to as the S&M room, it's, it's, it seems to me... Um, I just happened to pick up the references, but I got the feeling that there were more references elsewhere to be had as well. I mean, the 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 Poussin mural is is actually via um, uh, the the bitter tears of Petra von Kant. It's, so it's uh, there's a it's it's an appropriated image that's been appropriated already. So it's like a double appropriation, which then mirrors the strange uh, Bjorn Melgard, which is itself a uh, a redo of Alan Jones's uh, pop sculpture of the 1960s, which, which itself is a kind of redo of Noguchi meets Eric Stanton. So um, you've got this, this sense of, and then it makes sense, doesn't it, of the mamas and the papas, that we've basically got these forebears, as, as you say. It's, it's uh, um, a, a, a strange sort of sense of appropriation itself mm -hmm. being a tradition. Mm -hmm. I mean, for so long, appropriation or the ready-made was a subverter of tradition, but it's, it was doing that subverting for so long that it's become a tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, did you feel, David, that you were in, uh, there was a sort of retro feel to the whole house, or did you feel it was a very fresh experience? Um, I, I liked it, but I didn't find it uh, immersive in the end. Um, and... I found it less, I, it was not what I expected. I, I found it less haunting than uh, more cannibalistic. Um, the appropriation of all of those artists' work, and you're right, the references proliferate as you go through. Um, the, one, the one exception was the Mike Kelly room that um, just filled me with sadness. Um, and to see Gingham made uh, scary um, uh, worked I thought and was a was a a real evocation of Kelly but uh, somebody told me that when the piece sells it, it sells in separate rooms right. and that the, all of the, that the I'm Steinbeck and the and the Gober and the Mike Kelly are replaced by 
the artist with white, just white. White versions. Yeah, yes, they're, that's they're what basically I heard. blank versions is yeah. what he replaces them with. Yeah, which <laughs> I, I, would, I wanted to see that. Yeah, that uh, would be super interesting. <laughs> that would have, maybe he just should have done that from the get go because that would have added a, yeah. You know, the, I, I actually found it really, really immersive. And, 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 and I'll tell you why. I, I think the layers of, of synesthesia, as Jennifer sort of put forward, um, and just of, liter of elusiveness. I mean, I, I actually got loosed from the appropriation aspect of it by the endless layering of, of, of reference. Um, and the reference is personal and artistic, and then and and then genuinely sort of cultural in a in a in a in a pan way. I mean, one of the references I came up with, um, and and uh, um, which I I personally found interesting was that it, like Lynch's uh, Blue Velvet, it again sort of starts. Remember Lynch's Blue Velvet, you go into the ear and you basically sort of come out of the ear and all kinds of crazy things happen in between. I found that to be more or less the same kind of dreamlike structure, which has been repeated over and over in all kinds, from parables to, 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 uh, uh, to, to, to novels to, to, to what have you, to obviously sort of art pieces. Um, uh, and, and just really sort of uh, um, powerful and immersive. And, and lastly, the other thing I would say is that for I, I found this to be one of the best shows of a young artist I've seen in at least a half a decade. And I thought it put to shame just about everything over at the Triennial New Museum. Um, I, I found this to be a really, really strong show. And, and I didn't, I mean, I was aware of the uh, Corte before, because um, he did a, apparently a very good piece that I failed to see at the ICA in Philadelphia. Yes. Um, but. Uh, but I, I, I was almost skeptical going in, to be perfectly honest with you. Was that your experience as well? Yeah, I was skeptical, but, um, but I, I agree. Over. I found it incredibly immersive, just um, quirky and personal. Um, the other thing I forgot to mention is he does all of these things with kind of morphing regular objects. So there's like a mop or a broom that looks like a witch or, you know, an um, umbrella that kind of becomes a sword. And he does that all. It's just very, like I said, just kind of very meticulous. Not There's not a spectacle atmosphere. It was immediately, for me, very immersive and transportive. So Poetic, yeah. literary, I mm -hmm. mean, you know. Yeah, all kinds of things. Perhaps that um, erotic room, the, the, the should we call it Petra's Den room, uh, was the, the closest we get to um, shock or spectacle. Um, uh, David, would you, would you think uh, that um, something strange happens to the appropriated object, though? I mean, the Melgard is so intentionally a shocking piece. It takes what's a notorious piece in the 60s by Alan Jones, tries to make it more, refresh its notoriety by making the model black. Um, it, it got an extra lease of notoriety when uh, Dasha, whatever she's Zuckerberg. called, Zukova sat on it on Martin Luther King Day. But um, <laughs> uh, on, not on that piece, but on a, the, there's a companion yeah. Alan Jones piece of uh, a, a girl lying, a young woman lying on her back, and that becomes the chair. Um, and yet somehow it's sort of anesthetized. It's sort of, uh, we, we don't get the sense of it being, oh, I didn't get the sense of it um, being a, a provocation. It just seemed um, um, 
a strangely displaced um, object. I, 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 I'm a little bit, I think, with you in that I'm not as absorbed by the show as I could have been. Um, I like the, I like the vibe. I like the energy. I like the aspirations to some extent, but um, I, I couldn't quite get it to add up for me. Um, I'm afraid I agree with that. The, 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 some of the. Um I didn't think the transformations were enough. Some of them were obvious. Um, and this is probably not a good sign. I kept thinking about other people's, other artists' transformation of Upper East Side townhouses like David Hammond's, um, where you, uh, that's an unfair comparison, obviously. Pretty yeah, high. Yeah. yeah, he's a bar. But, but that's, that's in, in it, Hammond's is, is because of the installation of his work at L&M. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, this is actually, um, turns a very luxurious Upper East Side place into what feels like it could be in, in a sort of slum neighborhood of, of, of Philadelphia or something, um, almost. I mean, with the, well, not slums, but um, it's certainly downgrade. It, there's, it a, be, there's a Philly feel to a good bit of it. Yeah, yeah. A realtor wouldn't particularly want to sell that house with the installation. But, but didn't, well, he, he might yes. if he knew the price of the pieces. But, right. <laughs> but didn't, didn't any of you... I, I came up with... I came up with... That's the wrong way to say it. Um, it. It occurred to me that there was some similarity to the structure of the web as well. I mean, not to get too nutty about this, but, but there's, a, there's a... I found there to be a daisy chain effect to a lot of the... Again, reference is the wrong term here. To, I think to the elusiveness of, of, the, of the installation in general. Um, uh, one thing seemed to pull at another, and again, I, I think this, that I found this installation to live um, and to uh, sort of promote itself better, uh, slightly outside of sort of the usual artistic discourse. I, I, I know that he, he used those pieces as significant sort of references, but I do think the ones that we discussed, but I do think he did so in part to sort of, um, I don't know, uh, DNH them, bring them down a couple of pegs, um, and I find that interesting. You know, I, I find the ability to be able to sort of to um, not necessarily be able to distinguish the Heim Steinbeck shelf in that room um, from any of the other shelves important. Um, and you know, well, but, yeah, again, that, if no one told you those were Robert Gober drains, is that a you know, is it a problem? I don't think it is. Well, you could say that with the Melgard as well, by putting all his strange tchotchkes on top of it, it um, it, it it takes it, it banalizes what's already a fairly banal thing, but it 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 deflates um, to some deflates, extent. It yeah. deflates, but but I, I I would question though the the, the notion that. Uh, um, uh, that you, you, you compare it to the web. Um, but I do feel actually that there's quite a strongly structured journey we're, we're enticed into uh, from floor to floor and from section to section. Um, I, I, I did get the impression of, of chapters within a, a tale. I didn't quite know where, well, the tale leads to a morgue, obviously. But, um, uh, yeah, but if, each, of, each of those sites has its own sort of like universe of components uh -huh. that you yes. can, you know, that you'll pick up on some and I'll pick up on some and obviously, and I, I mean, I, I had the benefit of speaking to the artist and frankly, the references he was coming up, uh oh, and we, f we failed to say that the, um, he wasn't, he was 
he was thinking about the mamas and the papas, but he was mostly thinking about his grandmother's house. Yeah. <laughs> right, you know? right, in, in um, Caracas, yeah, So yes. there's a lot of sort of very, very personal references, and when you talk to the guy, geez, I mean, you know, it literally is like surfing the web, you know? Um, this thing pulls the other thing, and, and you know, and I, and I found that genuinely interesting within a real structure. I mean, I think you're right, David. It, it's not a loosey-goosey kind of environment. No, no, I, he's clearly, it's, it's not a Jason Rhodes. I mean, he's, right. I think he's, um, he's, he's uh, he wants us to contemplate individual things, but he also wants us, I think, I got the, I got the sense that he wants there to be a syntax. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't adding up to a meaning, uh, or, or enough of a meaning, or a, a transcendent meaning. That's that's. Uh, but I I I, um, I I like I like what he's attempting. Yeah. I thought it functioned well without necessarily knowing all of the references, and that's kind of what I liked about it. That it wasn't really dependent on a wall label or something like that to explain what the references are. The grandmother's house that we're just mentioning now. You know, there was no way that you could walk through that room with the braided rug and the rocking chair and not feel that kind of a space of your own grandmother's room or something like that. So I thought the, um, that it functioned... Also, yeah, didn't that, it also have a little bit of a, a carry feel to it? It didn't have like a bit of a supernatural horror feeling to it? Yeah, funhouse. Parts uh, of it, but I think every, as we were saying, like the web... At, Every universe was very separate and had such a different feeling. I think that's also what I found, you know, really admirable about it. Yeah, um, David. Let's move our attention now to uh, to Charles Ray, um, a, a very uh, contrastive experience, going from a, a pretty little townhouse crammed with uh, ready-mades and remakes um, to the sort of apotheosis of the white cube with um, basically two sculptures on view, uh, a relief and a, um, <clears throat> a crush. Um, but we're still in a kind of uh, object transformed, not transformed um, environment. What's going on with this show, do you think? Well, I think Charlie Ray is a great sculptor, and I think this is a great show. Um, yeah, Ray has something like perfect pitch. Um, and this show, in the end, to me, was about uh, leaving our bodies behind. Um, uh, it's about obsolete vehicles. And, you know, the old Chevy truck that's bailed there, uh, he says he abandoned because he was thought that he was being uh, pursued by uh, aliens from outer space. Um, Ray, uh, Ray's work often has that it's a, a sense to it that uh, they're what an what an alien would, how an alien would see human bodies and other things. Um, the sculptures themselves were. Uh, actually have gravity. I mean, they pull you toward them there. The bailed truck is, uh, uh, starts out with the bailed truck, but it's actually uh, an incredible uh, sculpture carved out of stainless steel. Uh, I have no idea how it was made, um, and I didn't, didn't really find out, but um, 
I mean, part of this is my own associations as well. My father was a mechanic. I grew up in a mechanic shop and, uh, and have seen that, seen these things happen to vehicles. But, and I also thought that the way it was put in that room, in those rooms, was masterful. Um, uh, I mean, it's just two pieces in, in, a, in a big space. A very long space, and, and so we, we, we take quite a hike to get to the bailed truck, don't we? Yeah, yeah, and then it's, it's at the intersection of a T-cross um, in the room. Uh, so I thought the whole, the whole thing worked. I mean, he, he, there are missteps for me in his work, but it, not very often. <laughs> uh, I mean, some notable ones, but... Um, but but one thing that's very striking about his oeuvre is its um, lack of um, persistent themes or forms. It, it's, um, it's, 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 it's as if each one, uh, it's, it's the artist is, it's a brand new artist uh, dealing with gender, dealing with family, dealing with, I guess, whatever he's dealing with here, uh, you would say, you, you suggested dealing with mortality. Um, but uh, formally as well, you know, it can go from a fire truck to fiberglass uh, mannequins to solid stainless steel casts of, a, of an object that you can't imagine how it could be cast. It wasn't cast. It wasn't cast. Mm -hmm. so no. How no, it was, it was machined. It was it machine was, milled, basically. Yeah. yeah, it was machine carved out of solid stainless steel. Yeah. And the other, the, the other piece was machined out of a solid piece of aluminum, so. Yeah, I actually had a problem with that, like what we just said, because what I was saying about the Alex Tecorte, which was that it sort of functioned without the wall labels, I felt like the Charles Ray show was the opposite, where you kind of needed the person, and the person in the gallery did actually say this, I think sort of voluntarily, that this was actually machine um, carved because it, it does feel when you look at it that it's a cast of a truck and so you sort of only know that when someone tells you and then that kind of adds into your feelings about it because you learn it's like 13 tons and it's solid which you don't realize it's solid when you're looking at it you do I agree you do feel that the gravity of it and and yes, I would say the most powerful thing about the show was that, just having this kind of weighty object in the middle of an empty room and the power that that has and also the, the kind of compression that it has. The piece is really, I think, all about just compression. Um, so but, does that mean that it's... Um, do you think it was pointed in a, in a, um, in a, in a, like a classical sculpture to, to get an exact feeling of a particular or specific crushed uh, car? Um, or is it improvised, or it, is this not? Is, or is, is actually a bailed object something that's going to have so much distortion in it anyway that there's no sort of academic or sort of photographic right or wrong in rendering it? Because mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm, they say, they don't really specify, you know, in the press release it says that it started with a pickup truck that was compressed into a rectangular block. That's how the piece started. So whether it was actually based on that exact truck or whether he improvised based on a feeling about a truck. 
Yeah, your 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 man at the gallery is telling tales at the school because none of that information basically sort of appears in the press release. Um, none of the tonnage. No, no. Well, I don't know whether it should have, but the gallery took the position not to include it. That's all. But but uh, um, uh, the but, but truck, obviously you sort the of the bail truck weighs something like four tons. Yeah, but I saw that in another piece of press. I don't remember where it was. Mm -hmm. um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, obviously, it's the opposite of a John Chamberlain, isn't it? I mean, it's 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 intended to do something different, and clearly, it's supposed to give you a sense of weight, and 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 the install is certainly supposed to give you a sense of weight, since it it's basically struck they've structured the, that particular gallery like a transept. I mean, that mm. part is like you know a churchy transept. The whole so it's install, an altar, it's like an altar in a way. But, oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, but it's, and then, so then, and then if the it's chapel the, for the mm. other piece, frankly, like, you know. uh, if it's the opposite of a Richard Chamberlain. Is is it uh, is it also the opposite of a Richard Serra? Because with Serra, so much has to do with with those early lumps of knowing that they're solid. They're not. Mm -hmm. uh, they could just as easily have not been solid, and they could have looked identical. But the, the the sort of conceptual or symbolic knowledge that it is solid gives it weight. Uh, quote unquote. Totally. I think I, I, I don't Does, think it's the opposite of a Sarah. I think it's more like a Sarah. more like a Sarah than a Chamberlain. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Yeah. But yeah, I think so but too. The, the bizarre thing is that it's a representation of um, of a of what it is. I mean, it looks like it it looks like it belongs within the tradition of the crushed car, the, the found object, etc. Mm -hmm. But it's rep, but it's uh, replicated by actually a rather arduous academic technique. So, funnily enough, it then actually does tie in directly with Dacorte, with his, um, his kind of strange illusionism. fastidiousness. Illusionism. Illusionism, and, but um, also Ray's work is always dealing with illusionism and hyper-realism, and he's playing with the nature of illusionism with um, these kind of hyper-realist figures, but they're in the wrong scale, you know, either smaller or larger than life-size. So, um, that part was sort of constant um, but I found it, I thought about Sarah actually too, um, of course, but the thing that the Sarahs really have is like in addition to that weight, there's this implied, you know, movement or the fact that they are impedances on our movement. I found this piece very, very static and inert. So once you you know, make that passage to where it is, and I agree, you are kind of drawn to that place, that transept. Once you're there, it's, I don't know, it's just, you're there, it's done, so. But although the color is silver rather than gold, it looks like <clears throat> Midas has touched this. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it, because it's in, an, in a material, and a, with a, uh, an ethereal, but <coughs> it's, it's rock solid, and yet coloristically ethereal in a way that makes it obviously very, very displaced and bizarre, right? I mean, apart from the fact that one doesn't see bailed trucks in uh, uh, Chelsea, you know, in, in superb, huge white cubes that often. But I mean, just, just even allowing for that, it's, it's um, an odd transformation. Now, is it, is it just a surreal thing that, that's going on here? I didn't no. find it surreal. I mean, as far as the um, silver and or the Midas touch that you're talking about, for me, that was really just uh, drawing attention to the craft. I thought a lot of this piece was really functioning on that, drawing attention to the craft 
It weighs 13 tons. It was made over eight years. You know, it was machine carved, and I think it was overly reliant on that as a value. Right, because that's anecdotal information. That's a bit like being told it's like a medieval altar, uh, or Renaissance painting and saying it, it has this much gold and this much ultramarine and, mm-hmm. and made by this master with this, you know. It's so it's, and the sort of time and craft element that, you know, you're supposed to be kind of impressed by the fact that there was this much time put into it, this much material, this much weight, took this much effort, obviously, to place it in the so gallery. So you're feeling slightly conned by this whole process, by this whole spiel? Uh, I wouldn't say conned. Um, I just didn't feel like it had a great resonance past that one, you know, moment of moving towards it. As I said, and seeing this weighty object, not not really conned. What, what at is all. the what is the what is the value or meaning of the, the the relief of the girl on the pony? Do we know who she is? Um, what, what 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 is this an appropriated image? Is this a personally significant image? I don't know, and I, I at what first feel it is. I, I at first had more problems with it, uh, just because of a class thing, I think. But then I became obsessed with the girl's ear, uh, and I kept coming back to it. And the the relief is actually curiously photographic. It's not just because it's silver. It it operates like, uh, f- for me, it operated more like a like a photographic thing. right. It certainly, it certainly put me in mind of Luke Toyman's immediately, or, or yeah, uh, I mean, it's silky Ray's done it yeah. many times with silver, where he's he's r- responding to photographic reality, but um, but the ear was definitely the punctum. <laughs> uh, what was it about the ear? That was, uh, it, it was incongruous, or it was? It's perfect. Uh, it's and the rest isn't right. Perfect in an alien way. Did you, were you transported by the ear, Christian? <laughs> of the pitch perfect artist? keeps coming up over and over again. Um, no, you know what I was sort of transported by was the idea that like with the other piece and like so much of uh, Ray's work, he's, you know, it's essentially just, you can boil it all down to sort of uh, sculptural rationales. It's about weight, it's about volume. Um, uh, uh, it's about, you know, um, uh, size. Um, scale and, and in this case, I kept looking at this thing and thinking it was sort of like a square cameo blown up, you know, because um, it felt miniature, frankly, um, you know, and, and it reminded me of other pieces that Ray has made, um, where essentially that, you know, little thing that becomes big, you know, is is a is a significant part of the form, and it has been sort of a running motif for him. Um, the other thing that sort of struck me about the piece was the excising of what would have made it heroic? The horse, specifically. You know, I mean, if you get the full, if you if you get the full girl on the horse, you don't concentrate in the ear, among other things. You concentrate on the horse. You know, um, it becomes something that we that we'd see sort of out here in Central Park, um, and 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 that's a totally sort of different sculpture. And I think that kind of editing is what Ray is really good at, right? And that, um, that editing has a photographic... Uh, it, it, totally, uh, absolutely. S- yeah. ...feel to it. Yeah. He's the cropping. Crop all the way down, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and, and yet the fact of its being a relief um, does put it in, in the context of something more... Older. ...classical, Renaissance. You think of some... Uh, uh, some general on his horse, um, or, or some Renaissance sort of uh, mercenary. Um, so, 
it has a very luxurious um, um, quality to it. Um, and it's a bizarre sense of, you know, the horse is an anachronistic mode of transport and the bailed truck is um, a current and yet rendered impotent form of transport. So transport seems to be a, a strange link between these objects. I, I kept thinking pewter when I was looking at that uh, uh, right. girl, right? You know, and, 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 and thinking, you know, historical museum. You know, not quite, you know, Williamsburg, Virginia, but... Or a mortuary, or it could be a memorial oh, to yes, some... that could be too. ...beloved daughter on her pony. Uh, it, it Greenwood Cemetery. Right, yeah. I didn't notice the ear so much, but I did notice the cheek, because there's something about the side of the face um, that goes... I agree that that piece as well was about this kind of compression where he's editing and cropping it, also just the fact that it's a relief sculpture... But there's something um, very contained that I think you feel in that facial expression, which is why I think I noticed the, you know, the profile, and maybe for you, it's the ear. For me, it's kind of this cheek, but this very um, contained feeling. And and I thought about, you know, what I didn't like in the other piece, like kind of how inert or static it was. But that piece as well, like with the cropping, I was kind of, it seemed to be actually about that inert quality or unmoving and even in that facial expression, very contained. Yeah. You, you know, one, one thing that occurs to me about Charles Ray's shows in general, and I was actually ready to be disappointed again with the show too, because he is so spare. And I guess he needs to be, because if this thing took him eight years to make, you know, then, then we know the amount of labor that basically goes into each piece. The last show I remember seeing at, at, at Mark's also was, if I remember correctly, a two-piece show. Um, and there were marble pieces. Uh, so, I don't know. It, it, I guess it's somewhat fair to ask us to adjust our expectations <laughs> to not, to not uh, uh, though we want to see a full-dress thing with someone like Charles Ray, maybe it's appropriate that we, that we be satisfied with a couple of really good pieces. You know. Well, if it takes eight years, then presumably he learns a few lessons and the next one could take seven years. Um, but I mean, I, you know, this is, I, I, I think these the expectations, adjusting the expectations, being disappointed, not being disappointed. Look, it's, it's, it's the Matthew Marks Gallery. It's this huge, prestigious, uh, accessible space. Um, he can do what he likes in it. Um, Presume, you know, he, he, his, it's his decision to give us these two pieces and to take eight years over one of them. I, I think we just have to take it on, you know, we just have to go and, and deal with it. And what I, what I see it are, are intriguing objects that don't ultimately mean much. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I feel uh, I've learned things about the ears and I've learned things about the cheeks, <laughs> but I, I'm, I, I was hoping to be... I've always found him to be a closed book, to be honest, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I was waiting to be enlightened. Um, but I think maybe I'd also like to see if maybe our audience has some enlightening um, um, or some, dis, to some, some, some deflating comments on, on the, the first two exhibitions we've been looking at. So I think there'll be a roving mic going around. In fact, there's a taker right in the back row for you. Thank you. I wonder, uh, with a silver motif and the sense of memorial as well as transport whether 
wittingly or unwittingly, the artist isn't referring a bit to Moses, uh, who's quite fully allied with the whole power, destructive power of silver. I won't go into the biblical reference, uh, but it wasn't too long ago on Shabbat that we were discussing it uh, in synagogue. The, Moses destroys apparently half of the tribe after the golden calf by the power of injecting the power of silver into half of the tribe. But, so I'm, <laughs> that could be far-fetched on my part, but just an association. Okay, well, we'll add that uh, theological angle to the mix. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, anyone else want to bring some far-flung disciplines to... Yeah. No, 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 the mic is gone. We have to wait for the mic, please, Bob. You'll be next. The uh, title of the Decorta show was not uh, Ah, yes, Dehexa, the witch. Right. Yes, were we bemitched? Right, we in, didn't We didn't deal in with German, it. yeah. Each right. Extra creepy feel. Apologies to Germans. Um, I was wondering if you all would address the issue of sentiment with the Charlie Rays. It seems to me that that piece, the uh, girl on the horse, it reminds me of several other recent ones, the little boy with the, with the toy on the floor, the relief of him handing the flowers to his wife. I mean, 10 years ago, we would have thought these were ironic send-ups, but they don't seem to be anymore. And so is Ray using the whole idea of sentiment and sentimentality in a sort of aggressive way to see if we'll swallow it, if we'll take it? Yes. <laughs> I do. I, I think uh, that's always been a, a part of the work. He's not afraid of sentiment. Uh, his flowers prove that. Uh, say it again. No, David's saying he's not. He's not afraid of sentiment. Uh, he, he, I, I would go that far. I don't think he's afraid of sentiment. Well, no, I, no, I guess not. He's not afraid of sentiment as a... But to me, these, these things are so compelling as sculptures. They have, um, they have an animus that's palpable. I'm, I'm with David, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think... Ray's always been a deeply humanist artist, even if he started out in an age that was uh, very much anti-humanist. And, you know, I think I see it in the work sort of from the get-go almost. Um, and, you know, uh, one person's sentiment is somebody else's sentimentality. So I, I suppose, you know, you have to sort of, if you're, if you're, if you're going to expose yourself in, in that way, if you're going to essentially imbue work with emotion, well then... You have to be prepared for that kind well, of would you, charge. Well, would you say that, for instance, the girl on the horse is nostalgic in any way? Yes, I would. I'd say it's, but it's beyond that. I mean, I think that the, the reference I made to the cameo is, you know, a cameo is something personal. You know, it's a keepsake. It, it, nostalgia is involved, but so is the, the, the idea of memorializing. And I think both of these pieces are basically really redolent of that stuff. I mean, the the again coming back to sort of the churchy type uh, structure for the installation. That's obviously not an accidental, and that's basically established so that you're picking up, as it were, um, uh, maximum symbolic value from these pieces. It's basically orchestrated that way. He loved that truck. <laughs> yeah. Was this actually his truck? Yes. Oh, see, I had no idea. Right. Well, then far more so. 
<laughs> yeah. so, so who was it was thought he was being chased by aliens? Uh, Charles Ray. Did he really? Oh, okay. He's an authentic... And he, he abandoned the truck, and then it was picked up and bailed. I had no idea, man. Wow. So, so there's quite a backstory. This, this should have been called Dehexa. Was, um, yes, exactly. <laughs> was I it, see. Yes. Hi. I didn't see the Decorta show, but um, hearing you speak about the townhouse as a sort of context um, and bringing up David Hammonds was interesting, too, that... I guess I would like maybe for you to speak to the idea that the townhouse on the Upper East Side is a context that should be kind of is worth speaking about, whereas Matthew Mark's gallery is not as much, and that it's kind of neutralized in Chelsea when really it's just as much a bastion of upper class <laughs> residents and everything else. And so I don't know, it would just be interesting to hear what you think about the townhouse on the Upper East Side as a context. I was thinking about, um, we were talking about adjusting expectations that there were only two pieces in the Matthew Marks gallery. For me, that felt really deliberate. You know, the sort of big white box gallery with these objects that there's almost kind of a warehouse feeling as well. I think it's actually a really tough structure to, to work with because at this point we're so used to it. I mean, it's such a um, sort of trope of museum design at this point that it's 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 really tough um, to kind of go past that I also think that you know when you spend an afternoon on the Upper East Side you're going from one gorgeous brownstone to the next uh, all the time anyway I mean just this afternoon I went and saw Osvaldo Romberg at a gallery and uh, um, you know if you go to Hauser and Wirth you're in a um, you're in a sort of something that's a hybrid of Matthew Marks and, and, a, and a beautiful townhouse. So one could also envisage that, um, I mean, he's actually, uh, de Corte actually carved space out of what's already one of the narrowest townhouses apparently in Manhattan. So um, it actually could be reconstructed uh, on a scaffold at the ICA in Philadelphia next week. I mean, it's, it's not actually, although, it's, it, although it was site-specific, in that he structured the rooms with that townhouse, and although uh, he explored the, the the associations and the history of the mamas and the papas having to, happening to live in that house, um, one can see how it could also just become a free freestanding structure. When I went to see the show, the um, the front door was ajar when I came in, and when I left, it was still ajar, and the guy that was attending this show came down and said is, how long has this door been open because it was letting in cold air and it was freezing all the way up but people thought that was part of it so they didn't weren't going to shut the door so i mean i think this show this show would operate very differently if it was it was if it was not in in that townhouse it, so the architecture was very important yeah well, Maybe it not. I mean, architecture is important in both exhibitions you're talking no, the, about, the, actually, right? But the difference, yeah. the difference is, is that one was one of the shows is site specific, and the other one is not. That's that's the answer. I mean, I think you're right to pick up on the fact that both spaces and both environments, the neighborhood, the street, 
um, are redolent of class. I mean, Chelsea is a class denier, um, and the Upper East Side is a class affirmer. Um, but, you know, uh, in one case, the artist decided to essentially sort of make the environment part, an integral part of the work, and, and, and the other one, slightly less so. I mean, I made the argument that clearly he sort of laid out this particular space, you know, in a, in a churchy way. But, you know, he didn't, um, he didn't bring the ceiling down. He didn't, you know, it's, he, it's not a site-specific site installation. So he didn't change the architecture. He just drew attention to it by putting only two objects in it, maybe. Well, he actually, he did, actually put did. He did, did. He did put a dividing wall. He did put a dividing wall. Like a Mata Clark kind of a structure. So there is some there, there is some minimal of the architecture. Yeah, Intervention, mm -hmm. yes. OK. Um, some, one or two more comments. Uh, give it Michael Brent. Yes, maybe a, can you hear me? Yes, thank you. Um, so maybe it's a question for, for all of you, but I'll start with Levi. I haven't seen the, the Charles Ray show, but I was interested in the remark about photography and interested in the sense that I get about light and something about um, the way that these images function in relation to photography. But at any rate, I'm, I'm just, it, it seems to me that these works are interested in, in aura. And, uh, and, um, and, and some kind of relationship of, of sculpture to photography, where, the sculpt where the photography is in the background, but the sculpture moves out of photography and maintains, sort of holds its own in relation to it. So I don't know if it makes any sense to you, but if, if it does, I, I'm interested in what you think about the notion of aura and how it might function in in, in, with regard to these sculptures. Oh, I think bo both of these sculptures have a tremendous aura. I think you're right that, that that's, um, they, I mean, the use of silver and the way it reflects, stainless steel and aluminum and the way that it reflects light. I mean, this is a sense of photography that's in the past now since silver is not really a factor anymore. But it, when I say it's photographic, it, it uh, and maybe, uh, well, that's a big, uh, I don't, the, um, I've always thought that Walter Benjamin was wrong about the aura, uh, and photography, and, um, may, maybe in making that argument, because I think that photography acquired this other aura almost immediately, which was the aura of belief. And I think it. I think if I was making that argument, Charlie Ray's work would be um, uh, important to that. Um, that aura can be um, produced in in many different ways, um, and Ray's done many of them. Right. Thank you. Uh, that's, there was one. More here, gentlemen here, let's take, and. So I just, I, I, I don't have the benefit of having seen the shows, I'm just looking at the images that are up, and it strikes me from looking at these images that the Ray show has, and I just wonder if you had any of these feelings, is, relates to the funerary, because of course the relief reminds me of Aikens and Baskin and these processions 
And then this, of course, is kind of related to a car crash, you know. And it also carries, to me, there's a funny relationship between the two shows in that they both seem like jewel box settings. And the jewels are these uh, appropriative artworks. This, I don't think I could get away from the reference to Chamberlain in this case, because it's so much a part of it, even though it's different. And in the other case, it's more explicit, obviously. He uses the people's uh, artworks in the context of the show. But I just think it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's, one is this extreme white space. One is this incredibly patterned, tiny townhouse. And yet both of them are about setting, you know, for, and it seems, I wonder if that's a tendency that you guys see in the world, you know, that there's this interest in appropriation it's, and, and its context, you know. You know, I, I again, I, in, in both shows, and, and, and I totally see what you're talking about. I, I think these are anomalous shows in, in, in general. I think most of the appropriation that we're seeing, um, you know, I think a more indicative show of the kind of appropriation that's out there today is the Forever Now show at MoMA. Um, you know, where it declares itself as such, you know, uh, with um, uh, sort of gross autonomy, frankly, <laughs> indepe undeserved independence. Um, uh, and, and, and in this case, you know, I think it's, it, it, it's, it, um, it, it exists uh, without um, somehow or other giving, should I put this, um, it's not just reference making. I, I think somehow or other, the, the elusive power of both of these shows, at least for me, or, or this kind of work functions differently. Um, uh, and, and in fact, may function slightly more uh, like uh, uh, work previous to postmodernism, um, which tends to make me happy, um, at least with this kind of work. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I find that, you know, compelling. Right. Compelling is a good note to move on to something else and see if we find it compelling too. So let's, um, let's see our next two shows, painters. Um. So I think we should panel, uh, I don't like to police how we respond or uh, approach artists and uh, shows. Um, uh, but I think it would be maybe disappointing to feel obliged because we're dealing with two abstract painters for whom stripes and grids evidently play some role to fill the uh, um, 101 art history obligation to offer a straight comparison of the two. Um, and I don't think it does, would do a great service to uh, the artists. I think they're clearly occupying very different uh, spaces and sensibilities. Um, Atta Kwame, um, what did you learn about him, Jennifer? Uh, what did I learn about him? Uh, well, he's a Ghanaian artist, sort of a uh, mid-career artist. Um, my, can I just talk about my reactions to the show? Um, Your reactions are based on some yes. things you've learned, so uh, why not? <laughs> okay, so when I first um, entered the gallery, I found the paintings really, you know, kind of lively and having a lot of energy, fun, and they really reflect 
a lot of different influences. You get this without knowing that he's Ghanaian, you kind of get the sense of a lot of different cultural um, influences in them. Um, maybe Ghanaian cities, music, a certain kind of syncopation, a different sense of color that's related more to textiles. Um, so that part of it is interesting. I found the paintings um, in the end sort of limited because of the, there was a kind of claustrophobia to them where there wasn't really air. And again, you're operating, you know, to go to the grid thing without really comparing. When you're operating with that kind of grid structure, it's already, you know, you're setting yourself up with a tough kind of task because of all the history that comes before. And so it's not enough that the grid is kind of non-mimetic or all of those things. And I found the paintings most successful where they kind of um, left that grid structure and evoked a kind of space or a space place. And in some of the paintings, you really felt that, that there was a sense of, um, of space, of even a kind of architecture of the city, so kind of leaving that grid. I think the scale um, in a lot of them contributes to that kind of claustrophobic sense where there's not a lot of air. He uses, in a lot of those, a kind of very narrow rectangle. So it's, it's also a tough thing. Um, you know, I noticed that the title of this show actually references a container or a vessel, and so, and that ended up being my major sort of problem with it, was that it was, it was too um, contained without that kind of a space. There was a group of um, works on paper in the back room that actually had that kind of error that I was looking for um, by nature of maybe being on the white paper or maybe being more... Um, quickly executed, I'm not sure, but I was really looking for that, that space, both literally like in terms of evocation of a specific place, but also space in, within that grid that I didn't find in a lot of them. Yeah. Um, David, the, the kuduo, the, the, the vessel, um, was, was that a, um, a, a key, a way in for you for this show or a distraction? How did it, how did it work with you? Uh, it didn't really function much for me. I mean, th this was a discovery for me, the painter. Uh, and when I first, uh, I, I, I was glad that you put it on the list because um, I had no idea who this was. Uh, but when I saw the first image, I knew that I wanted to see it. And it was a delightful discovery um, for me. It's going to be hard for me not to compare to Sean Scully because... Uh, the two experiences were opposite to me, um, uh, but when I so I I, did, I went in there knowing nothing. It turns out that he's he's a very established painter. He shows constantly in Europe and in Africa. Uh, he's he's one of the main painters from Ghana. Um, uh, he's world renowned, the, the, um, and um, something from an authority figure as a writer as well. He's a trained art historian, so he's written books about um, the sources of these paintings in textile and in uh, mural traditions and all these other things. But just without all that, just looking at the painting, I mean, I love that kind of color. 
I, I, I believed every brush stroke. I believed every color combination. Uh, um, there's a strange thing going on perspectively that there was a painting in the, the big painting in the back room where you, you get it full force where the perspective collapses and, um, you've, and you've got these strange twists going on in the perspective. And that painting that was shown, the black square, you know, obviously uh, a reference there. It's not really a black square. The way that he uses black and the way that he uses white, the bare canvas, the, it, it, again, completely different than what Sean Scully is doing. Um, but the, um, this, one of the strange things about the, the Kwame paintings for me is that they're all cultural. They're, it's not like, um, you know, making a new optic of nature. They, these come from, uh, traditions that are, um, very old and very, well-established and they're responding to these traditions so but presumably they come from traditions where the forms were germane to a particular craft activity and these are then these are then being stylistically uh, transferred you might even say displaced to the convention of the um, pic pictorial rectangle well never mind the grid just the fact that they're uh, paint on canvas <clears throat> means it places them, it displaces them from the context in which mm -hmm. those kind of, say, for instance, weaving or incising um, traditions. But you also rooted. get caught in this loop where, I mean, you know, Bauhaus textile design came from Mali, right. came from designs from Mali. A much of modern, modern abstract painting has its roots there. Uh, so yes. you're sort of coming back around um, uh, to these sources. And in Kwame, I found those sources to be uh, really generative. Uh, in a, and it's been a while since I've seen paintings that made me laugh out loud, which some of these did. Really? Yeah. Would you Say it again? <laughs> Tell us the punchline. Uh, no punchline, just the... the uh, some of the things when blue verticals are doing one thing over and over again, and then suddenly they do something else, and it's, it was funny to me to see that. They certainly do um, play with and against the grid, uh, Christian, I mean, and, and they, they seem to establish rules themselves and then break the rules in, in as, as I say, where the lines go and where they end and where they don't, and I was quite unsure whether to negotiate that as being um, some sophisticated play with the modernist grid or as being something that derives from uh, a folk uh, tradition that I'm not aware of where that's, that's a, a tendency or a trope or perhaps just a question whether the artist had really fully thought it through or not. Um, what, what, did you, what did you make of this artist? What do you make of this show? Uh, well, um, I mean, I think it could have been any of the above. Um, I mean, I found the paintings handsome modest um, and sort of non-re in, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, there's, there's no revenge on the modernist grid here. Right. Um, uh, um, so there, is a, there, is a, there is a fairly sort of, no, 
uh, more positive than neutral adaptation of modernism. And in fact, I, I, I sort of had, uh, in reading the press release, um, made a mental note of the subtitle of one of the books he wrote. Um, and it is an African modernism, and it was very difficult for me to think of the work as anything sort of uh, lesser or greater than that. Um, and, and that's saying plenty. I mean, you know, not everything has to be re, and I'm still not going to find a way to say the word, but, but, but have a critical outlook towards modernism. And this clearly, to me, does not. Um, this is not the Glenn Ligon's uh, 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 adaptation of, of the uh, modernist grid by any stretch of the imagination. I would say, uh, on, on a more uh, positive note, that I was also equally convinced by the colors, and there's, a, there's teal, and there's mauve, and there's, there's colors that you never see generally in that sort of like tradition, even the late part of the tradition, you'll, you'll never see uh, someone like Scully using. Um, uh, and you see certain kinds of shapeliness that you won't see, that maybe that's the wrong term, certain kinds of shapes, the diagonals, for example, that, were, that seem to be sort of cut into to, to a number of the, of the paintings, um, that worked particularly well. It gave the thing some speed. Um, uh, and in fact, I think there was one piece that's called, if I remember correctly, Pepper Street or something like that. And, you know, it, Again, it, it was difficult not to think in the way that we make art historical references of, you know, of Mondrian and, and you know, Broadway Boogie Woogie, just imagining a really rutted street somewhere in, you know, in, in, the, in the Ghanaian capital. Um, but I, I guess the wrap up is, for me personally, I, you know, I, I like the show. Uh, um, uh, I, I, I did find it sort of like um, a little too comfortably circumscribed within uh, you know, a pretty, pretty established tradition. This seems to me to be sort of a very, a very late addition to a pretty uh, full program of modernist grids. Yeah, it's actually uh, interesting that uh, Dave, uh, David mentioned the Bauhaus because actually the, the artist that they most reminded me of was uh, uh, Paul Clay. I mean, they, they mm -hmm. seem to actually go right back to, to that sort of modernism and not be too encumbered by everything that's happened since Abex. Although I would also say that the, uh, the other artists they most uh, remind me of, uh, a Western artist, but completely coincidentally, uh, a black Western artist, Stanley Whitney. Mm. So they yeah, yeah. had a striking, actually, resemblance. And, uh, and across the street, there was a big Stanley Whitney. <laughs> right. Yes, yes. Beautiful, by the way. Yes. Well, he, we've discussed him on the panel before, and I, I think he's a, a, a giant of contemporary abstract painting. But I, I, I think that, um, you know, um, Kwame has studied in London, so it's, it's, it, it, we, we don't want to essentialize or sentimentalize you know who he is and where he is. He's, he's, uh, we don't have these divisions, luckily. I mean, we can just take each painter on his or her own own merits. Um, it, but it did seem to me that uh, Christian got it right. I mean, quiet, small, handsome, modest paintings, mm -hmm. um, and um, they, they, they they charmed me. But I, I'm, but David, I think you're making a bigger claim. For I am. I, I don't think there's any. I don't think these paintings need any special pleading. Uh, and I think when you're looking from, if going from Hans Hoffman to Stanley Whitney, this is this is an ongoing, rich tradition. Uh, 
that still has a lot of juice in it. And I think that's one of the reasons, I'm, I think it'll come up later, uh, why what's going on in abstract painting now, there's a lot of energy in abstract painting, I think. And uh, what it's proving is, as you said about uh, um, forever now, it's not exhausted. And all of these, all of these lines of, uh, of uh, historical inevitability that we've drawn are looking less and less complete, I would say. Right. I think he was working in, um, he's very clearly working with both Western and non-Western traditions. So uh, I got that feeling that he's very aware of both and working within both and not yes. really kind of taking any side as an artist and letting those influences um, come in. I also thought of Stanley um, Whitney and I saw a painting of his, I, I think, at the Armory show a couple of days later. But that um, comment that I had about the sort of claustrophobia or kind of lack of air, I think, in the, I was really thinking about that, looking at the Stanley Whitney painting, where there is a lot of a lot of air. The color um, that you're all kind of saying is kind of flawless. I I I, I don't really think so. I mean, I think it was lively, but I didn't. I think there are a lot of contemporary abstract painters working with a kind of wacky, quirky um, color palette right now. He's not the only one. So yeah, I didn't think it was yeah. a wacky, quirky palette at all. I thought it was quite muted and uh, uh, controlled, but well, muted and um, a kind of uh, rather predictably sort of earthy, um, authentic, quote unquote, authentic sort of color. Um, Let's move to Sean Scully. Um, well, I've already picked up some vibes on both ends of the table that uh, we, we might be in for some disagreement on the merits of this artist. Um, in fact, I should perhaps, in the interest of full disclosure, say that um, Christian did me the great honor of being my guest at the review panel Philadelphia on one occasion, uh, where we did lock horns on the subject of Scully, but it was a rather different body of work. Uh, for, for more than a decade, Scully's been involved in a kind of gridded um, uh, composition that he's called his Wall of Light. And in these, this series of new paintings that we saw at Chyman Reed, um, there's, there's quite a departure in a couple of ways. One is that uh, the, the grid has given way to the stack of stripes. Uh, two is that he's working on a, a metal support, and that's having uh, uh, almost an axiomatic uh, impact on uh, both the way the paint uh, operates and um, uh, in the way that the, a certain effulgence, a certain kind of backlit quality um, is, uh, uh, to my eye, operating in, in this work. But the, the biggest departure is that although um, his grid has never been a well-behaved grid in that he's, he is no minimalist. He is essentially, I would say, um, a latter-day abstract expressionist. Um, while there's always been animation in his, his uh, strokes, I, I think that um, he seems to have gone quite wild in, in this body of work. And... Um, uh, there seemed to be uh, a, really a, a rampant uh, expressionism. Um, but then again, the last departure is that while you know, the Wall of Light series implies, 
to some extent, a wall and walls um, in his photography and, and in, in his sculpture we see as literally uh, you know, a motif that, that does interest him. Um, he's, a, he's a pretty much an abstract artist uh, and, and um, uh, these works come as close as uh, we've seen in him since perhaps the early 80s where he was doing uh, works that had a kind of um, the, the feeling of architecture in them that um, these, as seascapes and landscapes, are his most uh, representational works uh, to date. So I, I found it to be an emboldened, a bold and, and um, uh, set of moves that uh, paid a dividend. I, I found myself having positive and strong experiences in this show. And um, let me ask Jen if she, what, what, what her response was. Uh, yeah, I didn't feel like he was going wild, definitely. <laughs> um, you know, I, I really had the feeling that he's working within a fairly circumscribed or narrow range and has been for some time. And even this show is was a basically very narrow range where you had a group of, they were all, as you said, paintings uh, um, with these horizontal bands. Um, I think the most successful of them do really evoke those landscapes and seascapes. I would say the seascapes um, for me were the more successful. And I do really kind of respect his, his project and ambition, which is I think you could describe as a kind of faith in the painterly to really evoke these sensations. So um, in some of them I found that, but uh, yeah, I was, I was bothered by the kind of narrowness of the range. There's kind of, um, I definitely didn't feel like he was going wild. Like I, I felt like there's a kind of self-satisfaction in wh where he's operating and where he's playing in this body of work as far as not really pushing those kinds of abstractions to another, to another place. Okay, right. Well, I, 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 would, I would say that there's a, there was an, another element in which I think specifically he goes a bit wild by his own terms. I mean, wildness is always relative, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he, he, when, you, when we saw his, his works at the uh, drawing centre last year, um, we saw that the, the very pared-down minimalism from which he, he's emerged. So... Um, the, 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 almost a, a strict rule in his uh, paintings of the last decade or so is that while there are sometimes more than one stroke that makes up each lozenge or cube within the grid, it's basically that there isn't a sort of a sense of a painting composition within each segment. Um, it's the, the whole that has to carry that kind of uh, syntax. Whereas um, what I thought was wild here is, is, is the way in which sometimes within each segment there were different colors and different um, directions of stroke uh, and, and gestures and gestures that subverted the, um, the demarcations between uh, the different stripes. Um, uh, Christian, did you notice that as well? Did you? I did. I did. You know, I I I, I think you're you're right in pointing out that he's not exactly wearing a lampshade or hanging from the chandelier, but 
any stretch of the imagination. Um, but, you know, uh, there's a different range of wildness for nuns than there is for party guys. So, um, and, 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 you know, I, I think with, um, with uh, Scully, yeah, there, there, I definitely saw um, uh, what you saw, obviously, which was a, a, a deliberate attempt to um, almost make candy floss-like stripes. Um, within within the within the blocks of color, um, uh, there there was a lot of uh, color melding. Where before I remember um, uh, his paintings basically sort of exhibiting far more um, blocky like colors or uniform colors. Um, you know, I think the thing with with Scully in general, and and, I, and I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you today because. Because I actually wound up liking this show to some degree. No, I, um, I was. That's what I was hoping yeah, yeah, for. Well, no, no. I was giving you a second chance. No, no. Well, you know, uh, good thing you did. I, I, I like the show with caveats. I mean, my caveat is generally sort of about the larger conceit, and the larger conceit is, man, is it sort of heroic? Um, you know, in fact, too heroic, and there doesn't seem to be anything, anything limiting that 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 heroism. So. Whilst you find moments that are deep, deep Rothko, and I think Rothko is the person to go to with these paintings specifically. In fact, there is, there is a Rothko chapel-like feel to three gray and blue paintings, um, one of which I think is that one, um, in the way that they're actually sort of set up in, 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 the, uh, in the install. Um, uh, where was I going with this? Well, that... that um, uh, I think I've lost my place, but what I meant to essentially say was was that he's he. This is oh yes, that horizons are a bit like rainbows, right? Um, they are so available to us that they can tip over into. They're certainly dramatic, but they can tip over in a melodrama in a snap, and and I I find that to be a problem again with the overall conceit of not just this work but of Scully in general. All right. Um, I'm sorry, I somewhat knocked you off course by trying to interject when, as soon as you said Rothko, of wanting to say that Rothko's teacher, Milton Avery, was the, like, uh, almost uh, uh, summoned from the grave in, in one or two of these uh, paintings with their land, sea, sky uh, demarcation. Uh, but David, uh, in our discussion of uh, Kwame, you were, were hinting at uh, a night and day experience between uh, Kwame and Scully. So, um, what went wrong with Scully? <laughs> what went wrong for me was the Met show. Uh, how long ago was that? Um, the big. The oh, big the Met, Met show. Oh, yeah. I thought you said Macho. Okay, uh, the 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 Met the Met exhibition. Yes. Uh, no, I'm. So, uh, but, from from that point on, I've right. had a, I've had trouble with Scully. And I was hoping that this show was going to change that. It did not. I don't believe the color combinations. I don't believe the brush strokes. I don't believe the bare the bare canvas between the uh, between the lines coming through. Uh, I don't that I found the colors muddy. I just don't believe it. I believe Stanley Whitney. I believe Ron Gorchoff. I believe. I do not believe. I just can't, and and this was even, I mean, even more than the blocks, the walls, um, I found this really 
very difficult for me to when when the bare canvas shows through sometimes it shows through sometimes it doesn't I found it absolutely arbitrary which is I, I don't know what to do with that um, uh, the only the only thing about the only thing that got to me were uh, in the blue paintings was the texture viscosity and and the the smeariness and but overall, I just, I honestly don't get it. Uh, um, and I had this, uh, you know, ongoing argument going on with Arthur Danto. I, I loved Arthur. Um, and they just, the gallery just published a book of Arthur's written about, wrote about Sean Scully for years. And I never knew what he was talking about when he was talking about Scully. Um, uh, so this, none, none of this really changed. The use, I mean, it's a, a, a indicative that the use of black, uh, I mean, you can compare, you can just take that and compare uh, Kwame's use of black and, and Scully's, and I thought um, worlds, of, uh, use of black and white, in fact, uh, worlds apart, but... I think Scully doesn't really use black. I think he gets very dark hues of specific colors. And I, I, for me, that's um, where Kwame seemed like a, um, a polite neo-modernist, um, whereas um, Scully, although he is discarding much of the kind of the irony and the provisionalism that pervade abstract painting and going back to Rothko, um, Bonnard, uh, uh, Milton Avery. I, I actually think um, uh, his 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 control and his. I think there's audacity um, in these paintings. Uh, so I'm 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 really kind of surprised. But uh, yeah, I, I agree that the um, I had that same feeling that there was a kind of arbitrariness about the where um, the bear, actually it's a metal support that he's using. So where that is kind of showing through, which in, its, uh, in itself, I found a little bit of like a shortcut to getting this kind of viscosity that he's after. But yeah, it did seem very arbitrary, especially in some of the paintings in the back room to me. You didn't like the one, the, the, the one where you had that gap and you, at the bottom where you, you know, that's the one you're thinking of, but you had a lot of fleck painting and um, and then drips and yeah, the drips are the right, right. Well, you know, I tell you what. I mean, you know, if if and again, you know, discussion of these artists shouldn't be in a continuum because they're. I mean, they are, I suppose, but um, that's uh, not not super constructive to sort of speak about either of them that way. But I, I. I it, one of them strikes me to be very much a modest mouse, and the other guy is significant, sort of a loudmouth. And I actually turn, tend to prefer the claims of a loudmouth as 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 much as I um, uh, find them sort of problematic um, than than uh, than Kwame's work. I mean, you know, I, I think he's he he. There is a greater ambition there that interests me. Um, uh, and 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 in fact, you know, just the basic. He generally puts me to sleep, I have to say, Sean Scully. Um, uh, and he has for, for a decade and some now. And I have never really been able to sort of like, 
get a sense of what people see in him, people who I respect very much, you included, of course. Um, but also, but as, as we get older, we need things that can put us to sleep. So uh, <laughs> uh, hopefully it's a pleasant sleep. It Let, could let's, be. Let's, uh, panelists, I, uh, I think, um, uh, um, patient audience, hopefully an enthralled audience, but we are running a little behind time. But I would like to have a few minutes of, of feedback on, on these two painters before we... Um, do our final roundup by looking at the, the young artists at Danese Corey. So, uh, yeah. Um, when I walked into both of these shows, I had a sense of frustration with both of the artists, not really knowing uh, the first one, which was the African artist. The other one was Sean Scully, who I'm fairly familiar with. I think that if you're going to talk about Rothko, you need to speak about Susan Freecon, who has a show right now, who is probably a better comparison and uh, Stanley is probably the person you want to look at if you want to look at this type of work of, of, the, of the first artist that you've been talking about. Mm. Um, Freycon uh, is somebody we've discussed on the review panel just a, just a few years ago, which is why she was not eligible for discussion uh, this time. Yeah. Because she has a show up here, and you did such a great job with her on Saturday. And you even got into it a little bit with her. I mean, it was, it was actually very informative because okay. she is such a powerful figure right, right now. Thank you. That's Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Michael's referring to the fact that I conducted a dialogue last weekend with Susan Freycon. Okay. There's some comments on the front row. Yes. Hi. Um, I wanted to pursue the uh, question of the influence of textiles that Jennifer mentioned on Kwame's work, because I think there are two sources that are important. Um, Korean pojagi wrapping cloth and Ghanaian kente cloth or West African kente cloth, which um, seem to me to be very deep sources in Kwame's work. But David and Jennifer spoke about this, and I wonder if you felt that there was enough of a successful extension beyond and from those sources in sophisticated textile traditions that could hold its own in the painting, which I think, I think is very difficult when you start with a decorative arts tradition and translate it into another discipline. Yeah, but once, once they're paintings, they're paintings. I mean, where, wherever the thing, wherever they come from um, and whatever influences them, they, all, all I have is what's in, in front of me, and that's, that's what I'm trying to address. Um, so I'm not sure how I would, I, I would probably have to see more. I mean, again, this was a discovery for me. I'd have to see more of the work to be able to respond to that. I just want to say that Kourmi, uh, um, it, it's very moving to see a Ghanaian artist to um, take again his 100 years old abstraction in textile. I mean, abstraction is so new for us, but for Africa, it goes back a 2,000 years and more. So. Um, to have seen his work here in New York, and it reminds me also the, what we should think about the G-Band abstraction in Alabama, uh, those masterpieces done in an island. Think also the way 
free jazz musicians in New York create today in relationship to their background of hundreds of years of improvisation. So a show like Cormi brings those major issues in, in front and it's marvelous, it's stimulating, and it shows that abstraction has a lot to offer uh, and thanks to African. And as you know, they do also in photography, in, in a movie which I advise everyone to see Timbuktu uh, still uh, at the film forum. So, so a lot of creation is coming from Africa and Tisho is really uh, doing a good example. Right, thank you very much. I think that's a nice comment in which to just lead straight into uh, the presentation of eight painters. <clears throat> and we're then going to do a little bit of a whistle stop, um, picking out of our, our favorites or um, expressing our reservations about these uh, generally somewhat younger artists. So although the, this, this is a show put together by one of the directors at uh, Danese, uh, at Corey, um, Gillian Brody, um, but um, it doesn't declare any theme or thesis. It is, it is what it is, eight painters. And um, I think we are um, almost licensed by, by that to, to cherry pick, unless, unless we do feel uh, this um, is an unduly modest uh, title for a show that actually has uh, a compelling thesis. Um, David, what do you want to do with this show? I think it's the latter. Uh, I think that, I mean, I, I was delighted to see this show. I think it's the kind of show, group show that Gallery should do more. I don't know that she's a, a director. I think she just, she works in the gallery. There was an opening. She put this show together. Uh, it's it turns out to be a highly polemical show. It's in direct response to um, the forever now. And uh, it is the first of these responses that we'll see. Uh, and I hope we see many more, but um, uh, she's saying that there is there are worlds beyond uh, what we saw in that survey uh, and there's a there's a whole other thing going on. Um, most I didn't know. Uh, um, I knew some of these painters, but there were discoveries. Duran Langberg. Uh, I loved those things and saw a connection with Jess. Um, and then it turns out that there is a direct connection. Um, uh, and the, there were various. Kinds of paintings, some that some I respond to more than others, but um, but it was uh, it was great to see them together, and to see and I didn't realize until afterward that um, part of the response is um, that the Forever Now was mainly uh, white um, artists, and this this show is primarily black and queer. Artists, um, not that. I mean, Are you that's, sure? Yeah. I well, I I okay. Is I, someone other black or queer that you didn't know about? <laughs> well, well, Matt Bollinger is is white, um, and uh, I think it's um, Caitlin Cherry and um, Nina Abney. 
Okay, we've got Julia Marito in the Forever Now. And uh, so, I mean, if we're going to do a color balance, I, I, I reckon you're on tricky ground because Julia Marito is, probably, I don't think, necessarily the only black person in Forever Now, but I mm. uh, don't know for sure. I haven't got that checklist in front of me. Mm. No, um, there's, there's Maria. He's black. Sorry? There's Mario. Right, there you are. You've got two <laughs> African-Americans in each show, so no, I'm no, rolling no. that one out. I'm no. sorry. Uh, no. Yeah, I, I don't think that it was um, a response necessarily in terms of color or politics, although it might have been. And actually, they don't really declare that it's officially a response to Forever Now, but that's no. definitely implied. Uh, in the show and in the construct of the show and how it's presented where the kind of construct of the for, Forever Now show is something like everything has been done before, all we can do is rehash, everything is the same and none of it matters. And I felt like this show um, was definitely designed to suggest something else, which is that you know painting does have power, it does matter. Um, I thought that it wasn't I hoped for more from it. So as far as um, cherry picking, I definitely love the Matt Bollinger. I think that that's a really powerful piece. He's using collage, but it really comes together as an image. There's two other pieces next to it that um, create this kind of environment. And then next to that is um, a piece by Joey Frank. Joey Frank. Frank thank yeah. you. Where there's also this kind of, um, it's a puzzle piece. And, and it's almost the opposite, where he, it's like he's saying it doesn't need to come together or it's kind of random. I can take pieces from this one and put it together with this other one. So I think the show kind of breaks down for me because it presents itself as this, um, as this rebuttal to the MoMA show, but then there's another piece in the back room, which is basically a painting that's presented inside a kind of boxing ring that's constructed with lasers and smoke machines. And to me, that, that piece, as well as the kind of puzzle pieces saying um, the, pr the presentation is more powerful or more important than the actual painting. Right, yes, yes, so there's a little bit of gimmick going on there, perhaps. With the with the back piece, the Caitlin. I mean, uh, definitely, there's a lot of gimmick and a lot of uh -huh. spectacle once you have yes. like smoke machines and laser machines, <laughs> yes. um, and the painting suspended from the ceiling, and you can basically barely see the the image through all of this. So, so there's a lot of gimmick in there, but I felt like it kind of broke down, you know, what I saw as maybe the curator's thesis, which is which is basically that it does have this power, that it does have this resonance. And by putting this painting in this kind of elaborate um, presentation, it's, uh, it's a negation of that. Okay. Um, Christian, uh, cherry picking or major thesis? Well, I guess, you know, the major, both. Major, you know, the major thesis is obviously, this is not a temporal painting, whatever the hell that means. Um, uh, and, and that, you know, what you get essentially are, are eight um, individual, mind you, uh, very young um, trajectories, attempts at, at, at making painting sort of count. Um, uh, you certainly get the sense that each one of these painters believes in their uh, particular sort of uh, uh, path, painterly path. Mm -hmm. um, and each of them seems to be sort of trying to invent 
or reinvent a specific kind of way of painting. There's echoes of Degas and Bouillard and say the work of Doron Lemberg, uh, Lis Marcus, slightly more Warholian. I kind of like those pieces and, and, and some kind of mix between Frankenthaler and, and Warhol because there's a significant amount of staining. Um, uh, you know, even in the places where you don't necessarily, or I don't immediately sort of pick up references, the, the, or immediate references or important references, the Bollinger triptych is also very interesting. Um, as Jennifer said, I like the needle channel Abney, um, uh, just yes. because of its sort of reduction of shapes, um, and also of color. She's got a set of sort of colorful paintings, a, a, almost a diptych of colorful paintings, and then another one that's black and white, and they both work particularly well. And the black and white, in fact, is very collage-filled. Yes. Um, so it's a different sort of, it's a different um, uh, uh, method of construction um, for a painting. But it, again, sort of, you know, we, we've just microscoped in. Let me microscope out for a minute. I found um, walking through uh, Chelsea, which is mostly where you sent us, with the exception of De Corte, yeah. to actually feel very much like a reaction to the uh, Forever Now show. Um, uh, and that may have just been where you sent us, and also, you know, where I sort of left the path, or some of us left the path. There's a great Anton Kern show where we saw the, the, the Stanley Whitney painting um, curated by Bob Nickus called, wait, because I think it's an interesting title, and it, like I said, it's, um, uh, where is it now? Oh yes, it's from Baudelaire, it's The Painter of Modern Thank Life. Thank you, The Painter of Modern Life. Right, right. It, it very, it, you know, it, 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 it's somewhat flawed, but very interesting show. Um, so, you know, it, I, I find it kind of heartening that, you know, a number of people sort of got on the ball and decided to tell the moment that they're absolutely fucking full of it. Yeah. Um, well, it could just be with respect, though. I mean, uh, that um, MoMA has a... a th uh, <laughs> MoMA has a problem with painting, uh, it seems, and, um, that, and that it suddenly decided it needed to do something about painting, and um, that uh, actually Chelsea didn't need to plan a riposte to the strange thesis of the forever now. Uh, Chelsea just carries on doing what it's doing, which is constantly finding interesting painters. And so, in fact, it's, it's, it's not a, I, it's much, actually much more, in a way more interesting and sinister than being a response, it's that they're, um, different planets, and on one planet, painting's alive and healthy and strong. On another planet, uh, they, these sort of, sort of stuck-up curators with a notion that painting is dead as, as being sort of uh, inbred into them suddenly say, oh, um, maybe painting's not completely dead. Um, we can try this instead. We can sort of stick some electrodes into the Frankenstein and bring it back to life. Whereas on this other planet, it's just full of very happy people. So, I mean, um, you know, that's... Is that, a, is that, are the happy people making a statement about Frankenstein or it's, it's the other way around, isn't it? I mean, I would, I, I would have said, I, I, I thought this show was a knockout because, uh, for, first of all, just to see two, uh, Doron Langberg is somebody I've been following uh, since he was at school, uh, since he was uh, still at college, and he just um, is a phenomenon. Uh, it's just, uh, to, to somebody to, to paint what looked like vuillards, but somehow just fill them with so much uh, lust and anger and, and pleasure and, 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 and energy is, uh, sorry? Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm not that vuillard isn't queer enough, but these are, um, 
uh, X-rated Vuillards, I'd say. Um, and, 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 and Liz Marcus, the other painter that really stuck in my mind, was the, the one that uh, you know, Warhol meets Frankenthaler, you described her as. But uh, to me, uh, they just seemed like uh, um, just good, happy, strong painters. Somebody who could make big, happy, bold gestures while dealing with cinema. It's, um, that's, uh, you know, cinema should be the death of painting, and here's painting that's just bouncing on cinema's knee like a grandchild. So the internet, so the internet is right. the death of painting, right? Right, right. Um, I would like to do two things. Uh, first of all, to thank my heroic panel for taking on five big shows, five, five shows and um, 13 artists. So, um, uh, uh, 12 artists, 12 artists, kudos for that. And secondly, I'd like to let you all know what's happening uh, next time, uh, where we're retreating to the opposite uh, solution. Uh, my guests are gonna be uh, Sharon Butler, Noah Dillon, and John Yao on April the 17th. And we're looking at just two exhibitions. It so happens they're not small exhibitions, but that's, you only have to go to two places. Um, and they're, I'm afraid, not geographically very convenient to one another. One is on the Bowery, uh, the Triennial at the New Museum, uh, Christian Vivros Fonet's favorite show. And um, the other is um, a, a departure, uh, not just for the review panel, but for um, any uh, forum, uh, a decent in-depth review of the Invitational American Academy of Arts and Letters, a sister academy to the, this one. So see you all on April the 17th. Thanks a lot.